0: Amen and amen, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name's Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Fourth of July, wow. What a story of being set free to live free. That's the story of Leroy, that's the story of every Christian. You know, I, I see these videos during the week, they send them to me a little early, and I was watching this video and out loud, I, kept, I was talking out loud while watching it. Unbelievable, no way. I love it. What an incredible story. Happy 4th of July. Uh, Americans love 4th of July. I don't know if you love 4th of July. It's like Americans are like, it's 4th of July. We're going to blow some stuff up to celebrate. We're going to light some things on fire. We're going to eat a ton of meat. I love it. Um, Now, here's what it is. is. This is it, though. As Christians, we love freedom as well. Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And I just want to say, you know, I don't know if you're new, some of you are new, you're watching online. I believe today Jesus Christ wants to set you free. The biblical word for uh, addiction is slavery. And some of you are enslaved, some of you are addicted. And God wants to set you free today in Christ. If you'll open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are in a letter written by a guy in prison who's very free. His name's the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is on death row, just setting it up. We've been in this for 5 weeks now. It's a short letter. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and maybe you could say one of the themes is freedom. What does it look like to live free? To be free? And uh, and he gives a bunch of images, right? You and I need images. We need visible pictures. We need metaphors. And so he does a couple of different things. Uh, in, in the beginning of chapter two, we're not going to go back there, but if you, if you look there, the beginning of chapter two, he says, he says being a Christian, is like being an athlete. I go, okay. I don't know what you think of when you think of a Christian. He says, being a Christian, is like being an athlete, or it's like being a soldier, or it's like being a farmer. Well, today he's going to give us three more images. If you want to know where we're going, some of you are note takers. And you're like, I, Kyle, you talk too fast. I'm, I, I know, okay? I know I do. I'm working on it. I get excited up here. So uh, there's there's three kind of images he's going to give us. So if you want to write these images down, he's going to give an image of a workman, or we could say a workwoman, but a workman who's working very hard. He's going to give a second image of a vessel, or you could say a utensil, a household utensil. We'll talk more about that and how God might use you. And then the final thing is that of a servant. Those are the three images. That's it. And the, the whole idea behind a workman is you teach the word. The whole idea behind a vessel is you model the life. And the whole idea behind a servant is you serve the Lord. So, if you wanted to sum up this whole sermon and this whole passage of scripture, it's this teach the word, model the life, serve the Lord. That's what we're going to do today. And it's amazing. He's going to talk to Timothy because Paul's about to die and he's going to pass the church on. And he says, and he leans into Timothy and he says, teach the word. We believe here that the word does the work. I don't know if you've ever heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was kind of a crazy guy, okay? He becomes a Christian after being a monk, and I don't know if he would be the greatest pastor or the greatest staff person. He's a little salty. And what, what he said one time is, is they were asking him this a massive effect. They said, you, your preaching and teaching is having such an effect. What are you doing? He says, here's what I do. I preach the word, and then I go to the pub and I drink beer. And he says, while I'm drinking beer, the word is working. The word is working in the lives of all of the people that I preached to that morning. The second thing he says is that character, he says model of life, or to say it this way, character is the catalyst for ministry. That your character, and character is who you are really, right? Your character is what you do consistently. That your character will be the catalyst. It'll be your, uh, your, your lid or your launch pad. And then he's going to talk about what does it look like to serve the Lord. And the main way you serve the Lord is by serving people. So I want us to look at this passage to open with me to to 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. Here's what it says. Um, It says this, remind them, we'll stop after a couple words here, remind them of these things. So we, Paul says to Timothy, we need to remind people things. Why? Well, because we said this last week, right? Paul says to Timothy last week, remember, now he's telling them to remind. Why? Well, because we forget stuff all the time and we need to be constantly reminded. Now he says, remind them of these things. What are these things? And I love this. These things must be all the things that Paul just said, right? So we, we have so far, if you're following along with us, we've been in uh, one and a half chapters of 2 Timothy. And if you go back, don't do this now, but do this with your community group. Uh, go back and look at what are these things that Paul said. Here's what you, what's going to encourage you. It's not like a ton of things, right? We, we say here that uh, the plainest things in, Bible, the plain things in the Bible are the main things. And the plainest are the mainest, Okay. And so what he says is at the end of the day, if you go back in 2 Timothy 1 and 2, it basically says this, don't forget Jesus Christ, don't forget his message, don't forget his ministry, don't forget his mission. That's what it's about. That, I want you to know that our church is not about a lot of things, it's about a few things. And, and if you want to be the type of person who makes a difference, the type of people who make a difference are not the people who have mastered many things, but the people who've been mastered by a few things. Here, we're really about one thing. We say it a bunch of different ways. We're about one thing. We want to make disciples. We want to mobilize them for mission. We want to do it in an environment of prayer and worship. What are we doing in the kids' ministry? What are we doing in that building? I'll tell you, we're making disciples. We're hoping to mobilize them for ministry. We're going to do it in an environment of prayer and worship. What are we doing here? What is Sundays about? We're making disciples. We're trying to mobilize everyone for mission. And we're doing all of it in an environment of prayer and worship What's your community group about? It's about getting together so that you can make disciples, mobilize for mission, do an environment of prayer and worship. That's it. Now he says, remind them of these things. Why? Because we always want to move on to what's new, what's next, and what's novel. Right? We love new. Don't you love new? Don't you love every time? I love every time the new iPhone comes out. (laughs) I'm like, I know it's the exact same one that I have. (laughs) Right? Mostly. But it's like, I, I feel like I need it. We know, we know this. There's, the, the, the evidence is in, the facts are in, the stats are in. New creates momentum. This is why, you, everyone's like, why are they ripping down a perfectly good McDonald's and putting a brand new one in its place? Because when it's all over, they're going to serve the exact same food. The answer is they know it every time they build a new McDonald's in the exact same place. Where there was a McDonald's, guess what happens? More people come. We love new. Now, now, here's what happens with reminding. What we do often with reminding people is we often, if you've been a Christian for more than two or three years, when you remind somebody or you're reminded, we're basically telling you something you already know. right? I was told this years ago, and this has been really helpful for me, that when you counsel somebody, when somebody comes for counseling, 99% of the time they already know what they need to do. Oh, I'm, I'm dating an unbeliever. I'm a workaholic. I'm addicted to some substance. It's like, well... If you're a Christian, you know what you need to do. You know what you would tell somebody else to do if they were sitting you, sitting where you are. You just needed somebody else to remind you of what the Bible already says. So the first thing it says is, it says, remind them of these things. And then it says this, and charge them. Do you see that? This is, in, again, in verse 14, it says this charge them, this is kind of serious, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins its hearers. So charge means to warn. That's, you can write next to it, warn. What is warning? Warning is telling people where things lead. That's it. You're, okay, I know where this leads. And then everyone goes, no, 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 not with me. There's an asterisk next to that verse. And if you flip to the back of the Bible, there's a picture of me. <laughs> and it says, it, <laughs> I'm the exception. And it's like, no, 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 we know porn is a path. We know where that leads. We know where the love of money leads. We don't have to think about it. We know where pride leads. We know where a life of bitterness and resentfulness leads. We know where a marriage that won't communicate and deal with conflict leads, and you're definitely not the exception. And so what I need to do, particularly this is what we do on Sundays, is warn and it's kind of, you see, it says charging before God. It's like, this is serious. We don't want to be serious about anything anymore, right? Our souls have shrunk to the size of an office episode. And I love the office, <laughs> right? Or a Parks and Rec episode. Like we've gotten that, we've gotten that shallow. I was reading a story this week. I don't know if you heard about this. It didn't make the news because it wasn't a, thank, thank God it wasn't a big deal. But I don't know if you heard, there was a plane that left Seattle, or sorry, that left Charlotte that was heading to Seattle, and so, so near us. And uh, it's about, a, I actually was just on that flight, not that exact flight, but I, I was on a flight from C- Charlotte to Seattle. It's about a five and a half hour flight. And they get off on the ground, they take off. And I heard a pastor wrote an article about this and they get into the air and one of their engines blows out. Now, I guess that's not as big of a deal. If, those of us who are pilots may n- maybe know that there's multiple engines, but us laymen don't always know that, okay? <laughs> so the engine, this guy, this pastor's telling a story. He says, the engine blew out. And they come on, the, 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 the uh, pilot comes on, and, and he, he's always scared when the stewardess start being scared, right? You always watch them. You're like, if they're scared, I'm scared, okay? Um, <laughs> and he said, the stewardess started to be scared. And this, this, is, this happened like a week or two ago in Charlotte. And they, they come over the microphone uh, on the plane, and they say, we're going to, I mean, imagine hearing this. We're going to have to make a crash landing. And this pastor, so the, the article that I, that I was reading about this pastor he, it was called My 30 Second Sermon as our plane went down. And he said that he basically, and thank God he had the grace to, he said, I stood up and I said, I want you to know why me and my wife have hope right now. Wow. He said, the woman next to him was crying, all these other people were crying. He said, everyone took their headphones out. He said, nobody mocked. Nobody said, I'm offended. Everybody was leaning in and listening as he shared. He said, and just right around then, the plane began to get under control a little bit more and it ends up landing safely, I think back at Charlotte Airport, a little bit of a bumpy landing. He said, by the time we got back inside and everyone was sitting over and planning and getting over, they had already forgotten. Isn't that how we all are? There was a moment where eternity seemed important and near and necessary. And so everybody is leaning in and wanting to know about where, what might be on the other side and where there might be hope. He says, I want you to charge them before God. And then look what he says I want you to charge them about. quarreling, words, the power of words. Words are, we literally, just so you know, I mean, if you're a Christian, we believe words are the most powerful thing in the universe. We believe that words create worlds. I mean, that's actually what God does in Genesis 1. You, we actually know that language is what creates culture. If you want to change the culture in your home, you got to do multiple things. You're going to have to stop talking a certain way and start talking a new way. Language creates culture. So we, there's a power to words. You know, like he's, he's like, remind them, charge them, and then about words? Well, it, it, here's what you need to know. Your words can either help or hurt. They can bring health or they can hinder other people. And not all words, this is good for you to know because some of you don't realize who you are and maybe how much you mean to people. Not all words weigh the same amount. If you're a boss, your words weigh more. If you're a dad, your words weigh more. Sometimes you'll be in counseling with someone and they'll tell you something and you're like, what's the big deal? The big deal isn't what was said, it was who said it. It was the weightiness of the person more than even the words. Now, he says, okay, there's words, and he says, I want, you to, I, want, I want you to be careful about quarreling. Now, what is quarreling? Bickering. It's the church inward fighting. Can you believe that back in the day, churches used to quarrel? Christians used to quarrel? I'm really glad that's over. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you've ever heard of, you know, there are, there are church splits. That, that happens often over quarreling. There are splants where it says it planted, but it really split and then planted. Right, And so he says, what I want you to do is, I don't want you to quarrel. Now, quarrel is to, because there are certain things that we need to argue about. There are certain things that we need to uh, disagree about. There are some things that we need to fight over. But we're, we're defining quarreling as arguing over that which is trivial and that which is tertiary. It's, it's, our, it's having conflict over things where God has not been clear. It's when we end up leaving God's clear revelation for speculation. Now, quarreling can happen in the church. Paul warns about it. Now, there are now, now some people are more, some, some people have more of a personality to quarrel, right? They're overly opinionated, they're very extroverted, they want to tell you all the time what they think. Here, I I've seen this. This we've had a very peaceful church, but, but this happens in the church oftentimes, right? Somebody comes into the church and they're overly passionate about some secondary or tertiary topic. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the people who come up to you and they say, um, are, you, are you homeschool, are you public school, are you private school, are you charter school? And if they're all wearing jean shirts or skirts, you know the answer they're looking for. Right? There's a the people who come up and they say, are you Arminian or are you Calvinistic? First day, and I say, we are predestined to have this conversation. right? There are, are you A-mill? Are you pre-mill? Are you post-mill? Our view is that we would like you to be raptured immediately. That's our view. <laughs> That's our official church view. We love you. And, and this is part, guys, here, here, here's a good principle. We take the word of God seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. That's why we talk like this. We have to pick on it. We have to make fun of ourselves. We can be so goofy. Now, are those things important? Of course they are. Do we care about the return of Christ? Of course we do. We always say here we're on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee for that event. You know, do we care about how children are educated? Absolutely. And that's a very important decision. And that's a decision that thoughtful Christians can come to different conclusions on. You know, do we care about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Absolutely. We actually don't think that those are the type of things that have to divide a church, We wanna take the plain things and make them the main things. That's what we wanna do. And so he says, I don't want you to quarrel. Let's let's keep looking on, let me ask you this. Um, Who do you quarrel with? Who do you quarrel with? If you're a teenager, write down my mom, okay? (laughs) Right now, if you you, you take notes, write down who you tend to, just be honest, maybe put it on your phone, who do you quarrel with? If they're sitting next to you, write it down real small and cursive, okay? (laughs) So that they don't see. Right, we tend to quarrel. There are certain people that you quarrel with, right? It's a sad story. A lot of right moms and daughters, a lot of mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, unfortunately, lots of quarreling. There's often lots of, some of you, your house is not a place of peace. It's not. Your marriage is full of quarreling. Some of you, it's at work, you go to work. Some of you, there are just certain people when you see them, it's just natural. You start quarreling with them. And I wanna talk about this because I want us to help us because look what Paul says about quarreling. He says it does, he says two things. He goes, it does no good and only harms those who hear, basically. I love it. He's like, I'm not gonna get super deep. Let me just tell you, let me just be straight with you. It's not helpful, right? I mean, how many churches and families, because I mean, what the church is is a family of families. How many churches and families have gotten off mission because they were all about quarreling, right? I mean, how many churches, it's like you are so ineffective and you're fighting about the goofiest things, You're fighting about Sunday school still. You're fighting about how to maintain and keep maintenance on this building still. You're fighting about the daycare and the parking lot and all this goofy stuff. And you're fighting about deacon this and committee that and and it's so irrelevant and that you're completely off mission and nobody's attracted to it and you're a bad witness to the world and you're losing all of your energy. I mean, how many churches are like that? How many families are like that? Usually when I see families and all they're doing is fighting, it's like, get over yourselves. Get over yourselves. You need something way bigger in your life than the four or five of you bickering. That's the problem. We know the problem. The problem is your soul has shrunk to the size of your little family. That's it. So everything's a big deal to you because you're the center of the world and that's the problem. If it's like, no, Jesus is awesome. The mission is big. People need to hear about him. I'm the biggest sinner that I know. It's like, man, figure those three or four things out and quarreling will be pretty much done in your life. And we wanna protect this church. I thank God, there's not, I mean, there's hardly any quarreling. But we live in a crazy time. Okay, quarreling plus social media. Do you know what the Greek word for quarreling is? Twitter. <laughs> no it's not no it's not okay um, you know it's not bad. but I mean it's just like right what does that do it's like all this we start we start fighting with ourselves we start you know and, and I joke about it but, but in all seriousness online bullying is a very serious problem some of us don't understand this because you know I remember you know I can remember upsetting some kids at school or I can remember there being conflict at school and being in middle school but I could go home and they couldn't touch me I could go home and it's summer break and I don't see him for three months and maybe someone moves and maybe everyone gets over it. But just so you know, parents and those of us who don't know these things because we haven't been around and we, we didn't grow up with it, it's like it's a big deal when everybody's connected to your child all of the time online. They can continue to bully, they continue to say things. COVID made quarreling terrible. They say, I, I mean, who's they, but whatever studies that I've, the most recent study I read said that three out of 10 pastors is either planning on quitting or resigning or retiring early because of COVID. There will be more pastors and probably other professions. This is just a profession I know. There will be more pastors that will quit in the, this next 18 months than there have been in any other 18 month period in the history of the church in America. And it's why it's because of like quarreling. And I thank God that we've had a relatively peaceful time through COVID. Quarreling about masks. Quarreling about vaccines. Quarreling about opening and closing. Even as I say it right now, you want to go, oh, we need to talk about that! I'm not quarreling! Something to pray about. Okay. Um, some of you, look, I mean, this is, this is like we, equal opportunity offender, right? We always say that some of what I say will be offensive. The rest will be very offensive. Okay, no. um, But... But quarreling, quarreling is, it, it gets more offensive because it is one of the areas, ladies, if we can kind of tiptoe you know, a little bit gently, that women particularly get called out in the scripture. There are, men struggle with different things than women struggle with. And we all struggle with a lot of things, okay? We know that women more tend to struggle with anxiety and depression. We know that men tend to struggle more with alcoholism and antisocial behavior. That's true. The data's in. Women struggle more with quarreling there's Proverbs, there's a verse in pro, By the way, the reason we take God's word seriously and not ourselves seriously is if we don't, we can't understand verses that say to live with, a, it's better to live on the top of your roof than with a quarrelsome wife. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Except for the guy who lives with a quarrelsome wife. He goes, not funny, not funny, I get it. <laughs> it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be like, it would be better for you to be burning in the desert on your roof and freezing at night and bearing the elements of the day than living with a nagging wife. And somebody like, I'm not nagging, I'm Italian. I'm opinionated, I'm an e A on the Enneagram. It's like, now, gotta pick on the guys though. P- part of the reason that your wife is nagging you and she shouldn't be and she needs to learn how to not do that and you need to learn how to listen, right? I mean, some of us are so thick-headed and so oblivious to what our wife's needs. And it's like, how else is she gonna say, we need a vacation? We need you to handle the finances. Would you do something with the kids? You're traveling too much. And some of you men, you won't listen. Shame on you. And so your wife, she feels stuck because it's like, well, you know, I don't wanna be the nagging wife. I don't wanna be the dripping faucet. I don't wanna be the quarrelsome person, but I don't feel like I'm ever heard. And so we need to figure out every marriage. Some of you are going to need to have a conversation with this, about this tonight. Or you're gonna have to talk about it on your ride home. And you're going to have to learn how to talk about it. It's gonna take you a long time. And it's okay. Learning to talk about difficult things is like anything else. You get better at it over time. But you don't get better at it by ignoring it. Okay, now verse 15. So he says all of that. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. He says, Do your best. So, so focus on you. Do your best. Make every effort. Do your best to present yourself to God. Look, like you can't, when you get in quarreling situations, at the end of the day, you gotta go, I'm gonna, look, I'm gonna focus back on myself. I'm gonna repent of any sin that I know. Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe there's something I need to grow in. Maybe there's something I need to learn. He says this Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker, there's the first illustration who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth. So he basically says this. What I want you to do is I want you to focus on yourself, focus on your relationship with God, and focus on the Bible and what it says. Now, rightly handle the truth, there's two different ways you could translate it. One is the, the language of using a sword, which is really a great illustration because swords can be very, very dangerous and can be very, very harmful. Or maybe we think of it as a knife. You could kill someone with a knife or you could do surgery with a knife. And the Bible talks about, hey, it is a very sharp instrument that must be used carefully. The other uh, illustration that's with rightly handling the Greek language, what rightly handling the truth means in Greek also is to give the right portion of something to somebody. It's it's the same language. Rightly handling the truth is the same language as handing out portions of food at dinner time. It's like I know how much of this thing from the Scripture I need to emphasize in this moment. I know know what we need to talk about. I know what we need to fight over. I know what we need to disagree and debate and discuss and dialogue, but what we don't have to divide and divorce and declare war over. And then he says in verse 16 something. Look what he says. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. Irreverent means not honoring to God. Babble is talk or teaching. So avoid irreverent babble. Babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And th- this is a big, script, uh, big emphasis in scripture that what you believe will determine how you behave. And what ends up happening in people's lives is they start behaving a certain way and they end up believing how, uh, things that are similar to how they're behaving because you can't live one way and believe something different across time. Your conscience will condemn you too much. So when you start seeing somebody believe something differently, it may be because behind the scenes, and this is embarrassing and they don't want to tell you, they've started to live differently. And it's become too painful to live this way. So they've decided that it's too hard to repent, so instead they'll change their beliefs. Then he says in verse 17, this is interesting, and their talk, these are beginning to be false teachers and problem people in the church and divisive people in the church, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now I was going to show you a picture of gangrene, but you guys have to go to lunch afterwards. So I'm not going to do that. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I, I did read about this this week. And what gangrene is, a simple version of it, is it's a disease that attacks healthy flesh. And, and what ends up ha- back in that day, I don't know how it's dealt with exactly today, um, but back in that day, what they had to do is it would usually come on, you know, on your limbs first, on your fingers and on your toes, on your hands, on your feet, and they would have to isolate it and then amputate it. So it's very, very interesting. He said that what happens in, in a church or in a group of people is bad ideas and bad teaching and bad living can spread quickly. Now, how does it happen? He, look, he's got, look at uh, verse 17. It says this Among them, so uh, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, this is interesting, there's always a group of people. They're nebulous, they're ambiguous, we don't know how many they are, right? They're loud, but there's a small group of them normally. Uh, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So this is interesting. This is so practical because this is what happens all the time. There's a group of people. Nobody knows exactly how many. But there's always one or two people that steps up for the group. And they speak for the group, right? And here's an interesting observation. Most times when Paul warns us of false teachers, they come in pairs. Now, not every time. But if you look back in chapter 1, Paul has a warning. False teachers, they came in pairs. Here in chapter two, there's another warning. False teachers come in pairs. Maybe, maybe Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Maybe Satan sends his disciples out two by two. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. But, but they show up, and it's interesting. This, this is helpful to know. Like, how do you think about the church? The church is not just, I mean, a simple, shallow, surface-level, low-resolution way to think about the church is like, everybody in here is nice and has good intentions, Everybody, I'm sure just everyone here loves the Lord and loves everybody else and wants to see everything flourish. It's like, no, that's a naive way to think about life. And the problem with churches is churches and Christians tend to be, God love us, but we, we tend to be naive. Well, that guy seems to be nice. I wonder why he wants to serve in the kids' ministry and doesn't want to be background checked. Oh, shucks, you know? No, 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 we have to, we have to be awake. We have to be alert. We have to be aware. There are three types of people in church. There are sheep, that's the good Christians. They love the Lord. They want to follow Christ. They want to learn their Bible. They want to grow. They tend to be trusting of leadership. They want to be led. That's the sheep. And that is in, in most good gospel preaching churches, the vast majority of the people. And then there are the wolves, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus in this situation. And the wolves come in and, and they, don't, they don't wear like, you know, big scary glasses that you know who they are when they walk in. They seem nice, they smile, they like to give you a hug, they like to make you laugh, they seem very, very nice. And then there are shepherds. The shepherds are the leaders of the church who protect the sheep from the wolves. This is why our church has pastors and our community group has community group leaders. And this is why we have the weekender. You, you wonder, what is this weekender? We talk, if you've not been, many of you have been. We talk about it all the time. What is the weekender? The weekender is part of the way we protect our church. People all the time, I want to serve. I want to get in a group. I want to become a member. Who are you? I don't know anything about you. I don't know your family. I don't know your story. I don't know your testimony. I don't know anyone who knows you. So the Weekender is our way to have a DTR. It's our way to to figure out who you are and you to figure out who we are. It's our way to ask some questions. It's our way that we protect the church And so he warns there. he says, I want you to protect the church from people like um, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, it's amazing that he actually mentions these guys by name. Again, how would you like that? Could you imagine I got up here? I'm like, listen, Bob and Susie, watch out for them. (laughs) It got that bad that he decided he's just going to start naming names. Um, He says this, here's what they've done. They've swerved from the truth. That means they missed the mark. It's the same idea of sin. Error and evil are both the missing of the mark. It says, uh, they swerve from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened. We don't know exactly what they said. They may have done what theological liberals done and said, oh, Jesus rose in our hearts. That's what that means. We don't know what they did. But saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. But then look at verse 19. It's 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 Paul's way to encourage Timothy even when things are difficult. So Timothy, I know you didn't know that they were bad guys when they first came in. They seemed nice. They wanted to be community group leaders right they just seem like overly opinionated guys but listen here's what Timothy says but God's firm foundation still stands bearing the seal so this is beautiful idea it's kind of a very roman idea that there's a foundation and on that foundation are two sayings one says this the lord knows who are his the second is this let everyone who names the name of the lord depart iniquity so it's impossible for us to know who are really christians we try our best, just so you know. We, we try. It's like, what, what can you do other than watch someone's life, ask them about what the gospel message is, hear their testimony. That's all you can do. I can't play JV Holy Spirit. I, that's all we can do. And at the end of the day, we say, okay, okay, you're a believer from what I can tell. That's when we baptize someone, it says as much as we can tell you're a believer. What the, what the Bible says is the Lord actually ultimately knows who is his. Now, you've heard this saying before, right? Some people... Uh, you can fool some people all the time. You can fool all people some of the time, but you can fool the Lord never. And it's like, th- th- w- here's the truth. We can't tell if other people are Christians, but the Bible does say you can know if you are a Christian. We can't ultimately tell if somebody else is a Christian. They could be lying, they could be faking it. They could be really good at hiding things. They could be saying the right thing and believing something completely different in their heart. Who knows? The only thing we can know for sure, the Bible says that God's spirit speaks to our spirit and tells us that we are the children of God. So an individual can know. But look at the second thing he says. So he, he tells us there's an invisible knowing and there's a visible knowing. The invisible knowing is the Lord knows who's his, right? That very famous God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. But the second thing is, it says everybody who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So what is the visible sign, the best sign that we can get that someone does believe repentance. You know, I can't see your love for the Lord. I can't see your hatred for sin. I can't see your joy. I can only see it when it goes public in your actions. And so he says, this is it. He says, the Lord's ultimately in control. And then look what he says in verse 20. Verse 20, he encourages Timothy. He says, now in a great house, and the house is going to be the church. And it's a great house because Christ died for it. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels. And when you read vessels, read household utensils, particularly think kitchen household utensils. They are are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. So basically it says, look, in every person's home, there are multiple types of dishes, cups, utensils, right? This would be true of everybody except single men, okay? Okay. Single men have a fork and a bowl, and everything goes in the microwave. But, but, but the rest of us, like, I remember, I remember getting married, we were engaged, we went to Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know if they still do this, this was years ago. And we went, did the wedding registry thing on Bed Bath and Beyond, and I have never seen so many cups, and I had never seen so many, and I didn't even know there were different, there are different knives for cheeses, right? There's china, there's, there's, all these, there's all this nice stuff, and, they, you know, us guys, most of us don't wake up to that until we get married. There's all, the whole point is there's different utensils in your kitchen that you use for different things. And he talks about two different types here. Look, he says uh, there are honorable and there are dishonorable. Now, here's what that meant. So back then, they didn't understand modern germ theory like we do today. But what they did know is there are honorable vessels, and that's what you ate with and served on. And there were dishonorable vessels, and that's what you threw things away with and, and dealt with trash and waste on. And though they didn't understand germ theory, they understand that you kept those two things separate. That's what he's saying. There were honorable vessels. There were dishonorable vessels. And then he says this. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work so the second image, the first image was a workman. The second image is a vessel or utensil. to. he basically says, do you want to be useful? And I think we'd all say, if we could be honest, we'd like to be useful. I mean, you don't want to get to the end of your life and go, I didn't, I really wasn't very effective. I wasn't really a helpful person. In fact, most people forgot about me the last 25 years of my life. No one wants to be that way. And so he says, what you, if you want to be useful, you have to cleanse yourself. And you're like, wait a second, Kyle, isn't that the opposite of the gospel? Isn't it that Christ cleanses us? The answer is both. If you're talking about salvation, Christ cleanses us of the cross. The cross forgives us, cleanses us, changes us, transforms us. That's what it does. It gives us new desires and new affections. That's what we call salvation. But when it comes to service, we have a responsibility to cleanse ourselves along with the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, the word of God, the people of God. Well, often today, Christians, we are are confused about the difference between salvation, which is secure, and which Christ did, and sanctification and service, which we're responsible to partake in. And so he says, how useful do you want to be? And then look what he says. He says, I'm going to tell you how to be a more useful person. If you say, I want to be more useful, here's what he says. Look at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue. So you'll see fleeing and pursuing. This is the definition of Repentance. I run from something and run to something else. That's what repent means. Repent means to make a 180 degree turn and to walk in the different direction. Repent means my, my face used to be toward sin and my back used to be toward God. Now I'm gonna turn around and my back is against sin and my face is toward God. That's what repentance is. So he says, look, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed, here's that word again, quarrels. So I want to talk about fleeing and I want to talk about pursuing. Uh, Fleeing is a big concept in the Bible. Think about, if you know your Bible, think about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph finds himself with a, most likely a young, beautiful woman who wants to sleep with him and not tell anybody. And day in and day out, she comes near him and says, no one was going to know. My husband's far away. No one's going to find out. And there's a moment where he is so overwhelmed and says, I'm going to give him to this temptation if I don't. He, he puts his Nikes on and he runs. And there needs to sometimes be physical fleeing. I knew a guy or knew of a guy. He went to Taiwan. He went to Taiwan on a mission trip. Afterwards, he said, I'm never going back to Taiwan again. He said, I could not, I could barely handle the temptation in Taiwan for one week. He just knew it. By the way, fleeing is not weakness. Fleeing is strength. Fleeing is I understand that I can't be with those people anymore. Fleeing is understanding I cannot go to that place anymore. So sometimes we have to flee physically. Sometimes we have to flee mentally, right? You, and you could do that. You can, I mean, you by the grace of God, by the power of Christ, by, by the Holy Spirit, you can think different thoughts. What happens with sin is sin attacks your emotions. Sin attacks your affections. And so then you feel stuck. One of the greatest ways to flee mentally is to start being thankful. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet. I'm not saying it works in every situation and will help you escape every sin. But there's something about being tempted in whatever area you are. You're tempted to be bitter. Just go, I'm gonna just start being thankful. Lord, thanks for my wife. Thanks for my husband. Thanks for my job. Doesn't even have to be necessarily big spiritual things. You will be amazed at what thankfulness will do to the human heart and how it will help you to flee. So he says, I want you to flee. He says, I want you to flee youthful passions. Now listen, I've read the whole Bible. It says almost nothing good about youth. It says that youth are strong and it says that youth are passionate. But so are terrorists, okay? (laughs) So so what we want, what the Bible wants is it wants the the strength of the youth with the wisdom of the old. That's what the church is. Youthful passions are not maybe what you'd first think. In this context, you could say by implication and application, but youthful passions are not sensual sins, although they certainly could be. But that's not what Paul's getting at. Um, Youthful passions are the love, the wanting to fight about everything, the love for controversy, the love to just be passionate. It's, It's passionate without restraint, it's zeal without knowledge. It's a desire to be right more than a desire to be understood or to forgive. And so he says, I want you to flee youthful passions, and then I want you to pursue something. And this is important, right? You have to run away from something, and you have to replace it. This is why Christians get weird. I know it's not a theological word, but we get weird and we get miserable if we try to repent without replacing. You have to repent. I, I, I can't hang out with those friends. They were terrible on me. They were... Bad influences, I need to repent, I need to replace, I need a new group of friends. I need a new community group, I need new relationships. I I, I need to stop watching, you know, whatever I'm watching that's bad. I need to replace it with some good things. I need to stop listening to the garbage that I've been listening to. I need to replace it with a good Christian podcast. The Bible teaches repentance and replacement. This is why Paul says, take off the old man, and then he says, put on the new man. And so he, he tells them to flee and to pursue. And the, but we can't do it alone. Look what he says. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love along with those who call on the name, call on the Lord from a pure heart. You wonder why we talk about community so much here. There are certain things, and let's just be honest. There are certain things that you're not going to be able to flee from alone. And here's, here's the test. If you could have fled from it already by yourself, you would have. You know that. Some of you, I'm not telling anybody. They would never understand. This is going to be secret in my life. Nobody's gonna be let in and you will be in the exact same place. There are certain things that you're gonna need somebody else to hold you accountable. You're gonna need somebody else to encourage you. You're gonna need somebody else to to ask about it. And there's certain things that you wanna do good that you're gonna need help doing. I need help going to church. I need help getting in a community group. I need help reading my Bible. We're not meant to do do all these things, be isolated all alone. We're, we're We're to do these things together which leads to the last thing he says. He gives this illustration of being a servant of the Lord. So he says to um, verse 24, he says this, and the Lord's servant, this is how he ends, must not be quarrelsome. So he's talking like, I mean, this is a big deal. This is the third or fourth time he's mentioning the word quarrel or quarrelsome. So now he's like, listen, particularly those in leadership, especially dad. You know, especially who's in charge. She says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And then here, here's, what's the opposite of quarrelsome? Help me. If I'm going to re- repent of it, I need to replace it. Okay, what is it? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. Kind to everyone. You read kind to everyone, you go, but, but can't, there's one person that doesn't need to be included in the everyone. <laughs> right? What's often, there's like one person's name, there's one person's face. Like, do they, are they included in the everyone? They are says, but but not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the, let me give you a phrase that maybe will help your marriage. Maybe it'll help you at work. Hopefully it'll help your relationships, help your parenting. The phrase that he's talking about here, the idea of the opposite of quarrelsome is convictional Kindness. And I'll just tell you, Christians, those of us who are Christians, we're going to need to have a convictional kindness in our day. When people are believing very different than us at school or at work or at family functions or sometimes, unfortunately, in our own home, the answer is convictional kindness. So you see, he says, be kind, not nice. Nice is not a biblical value and it's not a biblical virtue. I don't even know what people mean when they say nice. I think they mean smile and let me do what I want to do which is not a Christian virtue. It, nice is, is kind of only compassion. By the way, compassion is a great virtue, but not by itself. No virtue is good isolated. You will do foolish things if you only have compassion on people. Oh yeah, especially if you're emotional. You'll get all emotional about someone's, especially if you know them, about their situation and their struggle. No one understands them. It's like you need need compassion, but you need conviction and you need courage. And then he says, look, he says, you've got to be able to endure evil. Do you see that? You need to understand that the cost of leadership is criticism. That's the cost of leadership. Are people going to say things about you that aren't true? Yes. Are people going to malign you and misunderstand you and misrepresent you? Yes, it will happen. What Christians need to learn how to do is need to learn how to absorb it. All right, I'm going to transfer. And the way you do that is you transfer the burden to God. I'm going to give God the burden. I'm going to trust God to reconcile these things. I'm looking toward a final judgment day. And then he says, look, gentle. Look what he says. Gentle, correcting your opponents. It's like gentle is not soft. Gentle is convictional kindness. We here at Two Cities, we want to be a safe place, but not a soft place. So you could tell us, hey, this is your struggle, this is where you are, but we're not, we're not going to be easy on the sin, but we'll be gentle with the sinner. We're going to be very, very tender with people and we're very, very tough on ideas. And if you will be that, you will be so confusing and so attractive to people because you're going to go, I believe the exact opposite of you, but I'm going to say it with a smile. And you're gonna push on my compassion and there's a lot there, but under it you're gonna find courage and conviction. And you're, not gonna, you're gonna have a little bit of cognitive dissonance as you deal with me. Because what's the goal? Look what the goal is. The goal is always conversion. The goal of convictional kindness is conversion. Here's what he says. God may perhaps grant them repentance. It's like, that's what we want. You want your mother-in-law to come to Christ. Christ. You want your rebellious coworker to know Jesus. And, that, and you don't want to become, some of you have become so quarrelsome and you've died on these goofy secondary tertiary hills. No one wants to listen to you anymore. You've lost your voice in people's lives because you've been so bickering. And so he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This problem of quarreling is a big deal. This problem of quarreling goes all the way back to the garden. What is the first sin of Adam and Eve after they ate of the fr- fr- uh, fruit of the tree? They're quarreling with each other. She made me do it. The serpent made me do it. The woman you gave me made me do it. They're hiding and they're bickering. And God knew He's going to have to do something about this. The gospel says Christ died for many things and and for your quarreling. And here's the amazing thing about how God's created you and me. The very same mouth that you have used to demean and to argue and to bicker and to complain with is the exact same mouth that God says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And let me just tell you some of you, that's what you've got to do today. This is the issue, it's a hard issue. The only way you're gonna be able to run away from iniquity, where you're gonna be able to flee youthful passions and move toward the right things in life is the first you need to be converted. And when it says, it's interesting, when you look at that passage and it says, pursue peace and pursue righteousness, these we're not pursuing ideas, we're pursuing a person. Who is peace? The Prince of Peace. Paul says, there's a righteousness that's been revealed outside the law. Who? Christ. Ultimately, what we're pursuing in all of this is to be like Jesus Christ, who on the cross, while mocked, while insulted, did not move back toward the people in anger, but instead forgave them. What I wanna do is I wanna just give us a moment to take all this to the Lord. If you'll pray with me. I want us just to wherever you are, I don't know, there's, there's multiple applications for your life. For many of you, my guess would be there's somebody in your life or a couple people in your life who you quarrel with. And I, I think the challenge for you would be what are you going to do today to reach out to that person to restore that relationship, to work on that relationship because either they're a believer and you love them and you gotta be brothers and sisters in Christ or they're not a believer and you need to restore that relationship because you want them to, be, you want them to come to Christ. For others of you, is there something that you need to flee? You, you heard Leroy's story today and you thought, well... That's me, I'm not addicted to maybe that thing, but I've got an addiction in my life that's hindering me. And maybe what you need to do is you need to say, I need to flee this and I need to pursue something else and I need to do it with other people, which means I've got to tell someone and I've got to get in a community group and I've got to come to the weekender and I've got to get invested and involved. For others of you, it really is, today is the day where you say, Lord, I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I believe that I'm not just a mistaker who needs a life coach. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. If that's you, I want you to call out on the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I pray you will do your work. We believe here deeply that the word does the work. We ask this in the name of the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen.